What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and it's that time of year. It's the Christmas season. More than that, it was our Patreon quarterly choice. So you put out a poll on the Patreon. And if you're curious about going to the Patreon, it's www.patreon.com slash 20cgmedia. It's 20cgmedia. Go check it out. Anyway... The poll went out. We asked my, uh, I asked my pollsters, my patrons, what they wanted, and we got a movie commentary. We're going to do a Christmas movie commentary. So I reached into my sack and I looked up what heartfelt Christmas message movies are there that we could have picked from. It's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, uh, any number of the versions of a Christmas Carol, and I came back with one that uh, really does mean something to me. And I think is. Something that comes back to the heart of Christmas. For many people, uh, Christmas doesn't start until the Hans falls. For me and for my family in this wonderful house, it's not until the Beagle is launches, or the Deagle is launches, I should say, sorry. So today we are going to be going and doing a commentary for Gremlins, that wonderful Joe Dante classic. So sit back, relax, and if you're ready, watching along and i think you should be because it's a christmas classic we are watching i've got the wb symbol up and ready and i am now going to be pressing play so ladies and gentlemen join me as we watch gremlins this comes to 15 which you know as a kid i watched way way too young this film gave me nightmares as a kid and i have proper um proper vivid memories of being in my bed and the pulse basing my ears but me thinking that pulse in my ears against the pillow was um, footsteps in my room and I, I remember hearing, waking up hearing this pulse getting more and more scared more and more footsteps and racing out of my room to tell my parents that gremlins were coming to get me so this film had a big impact on me so at the start of the film uh, we have Ron Peltzer in uh, Chinatown, in Los Angeles, I assume it's supposed to be. Um, and uh, I, I'm never sure if this is appropriate or not. This, uh, I mean, this exists, you know, Chinatown. Um, and they've gone for this really sort of like, this sort of closed in sort of lock. It's got this great lighting, it's got a great thing. It feels very, it feels like a set, but that was the 80s for you. And I love some of the stuff in the background. See, this is the kind of thing nowadays, if we did this, is Ron Peltzer's work, you know, um, walking through this store. You'd have a bunch of Easter eggs or gags in the background. And I think this probably should have been done now. Like the Ark of the Covenant would be sat in the background. Or, um, and this was done by Warner Brothers, so maybe sort of like a Harry Potter, like a wand or something. You'd have some gags for other properties in some way. That'd be quite cool. Um, the bathroom buddy. Here we go. So we've now got the bathroom buddy. 
What a wonderful device. I ain't gonna lie, right? Because Ron, you know, Ron's inventions aren't great, but the bathroom buddy isn't the worst idea. I mean, it's not well designed. It needs it needs uh, other things. I'd probably, I'd probably sort of be like looking back and um, rolling back the amount of stuff that's on there. But it's basically like a Swiss Army knife for dent for for travel kit. It's not a bad it's not a bad idea. In fact, I bet you could probably find something similar to this or akin to this today. Um but yeah, I'm pretty sure this. The other thing to note is obviously Ron uh wearing his uh Trilby hat. Um the design of this, the whole design of this film, this is something I've always been curious about. The design of this film is interesting in that um but how to describe it? They use um, "It's a Wonderful Life" as a reference point later on in the film, um, <coughs> and obviously he's wearing this sort of trilby. The look of this film is meant to be timeless. <coughs> Excuse me. It's clear that this film, although very much set in the eighties, um, the small town, which I can't remember the name of it now, is supposed to be that sort of like small town America set slightly aside. And uh, Ron Peltzer as a as a character is supposed to be a bit more like some I don't know, late forties, fifties, that sort of like inventor style. Um, even the Mogwai to me feels like some like some throwback to not so much monster movies, but what Gremlins do, I suppose, of that era. Um, creature features and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah. I, it's, an, it's an interesting concept, this idea, the, the look they designed for him. Um, this idea again of, of buying buying Mogwai, like this is this is the sort of the bullish American way, and this is one of the things I find interesting about this film is like it's very much about American arrogance. Sorry for my American audience, but th- this part in particular, like the guy that's saying to him, like you know, yeah, it's not for sale, and there's a reason for that. Um. Okay, this idea of coming with much responsibility, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. But this this idea of sort of like someone just says you go into a shop, and you see it now. If you go into a shop and there'll be something there that says not for sale, they'll have some really cool thing there. Like, oh, we've got this on display, but it's not for sale. Do not touch or whatever. Like you have to respect that. But like Ron, and it feels like a generational thing when you're just walking and go, yeah, I know you're saying that. I know you say it's not saying not for sale, but everything's got a price, doesn't it? Everything's got a price. Everything's for sale in this day and age. And you sort of think, well, no, it doesn't. Like you know, take none of this could have happened would have happened if he'd have just sort of not been this bullish idiot. And the kid also needs the money. They've got to pay for bills. Three rules. There we go. Let's go with the quick three rules. Out of the light to the nocturnal animals. So, because I'm always curious as to where gremlins came from. Don't get them wet, because they multiply. So they so they live somewhere dark and dry. Right, last one. Never feed them after midnight. Now, this rule is actually picked to pieces in the second one a little bit, because it was always midnight somewhere. Um, so... What? What? How do you do that? And what if they got someone stuck in their teeth and they find? You know, they track. They pass like a time zone. Because time. Let's be clear. Midnight time is uh, a human construct. It's a false construct. Like we measure time based on the rotation of the Earth and the passing of the Moon and the Sun. Blah blah blah. 
we have applied a um, a measurement, a construct, a measurement to that. But like animals don't get that. Like you can't say to a dog or a cat or a cow, you know, can you please come back here at sort of five p.m. or like, oh, make sure you're back after, you know, just before midnight. Like they don't care. They don't understand it. You don't have a physical. Um, you cannot have a physical constraint based on time. Time just doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. That one's always been weird. It's the weakest of the rules. What I would say is, in the original, in the comic, sorry, not the comic, in the novelization of this film, and we, I will be mentioning the novelization a couple of times, they actually give um, a full uh, breakdown of the Mogwai origin. Uh, and they tell them where they come from is off from China, but they also suggest they are from out of space. So Mogwais are actually, or the gremlins of the, are actually alien. Um, and so that's actually, I, rec I recommend the book. I do recommend actually, so, uh, you know, you know me guys, I love my movie novelizations. Um, and so I do recommend checking it out and I'll be referencing it again later on. Uh, a couple of things on this, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score for this film is is balling like i absolutely love the score of the film the uh the gremlins theme that comes up later on uh and throughout the film is 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 spot on uh and the other thing in this film as well which is sort of like was my real first introduction to him not just joe dante but like dick miller um let's call him over. richard or dick miller there's a documentary about him he's one of the actors a character actor that just appeared up throughout the 70s 80s into the 90s died not too long ago here he is, Mr. Fudderman, Dick Miller. Um, so, so good in this. Appears in so many things. He's been the Howling, well, loads of films he appeared in. But, um, yeah, Kentucky Harvester. Um, and this is the thing about this film. This Because this film, right, it gets, like, you know, it's fun. I love this film. This film is an out-and-out -out satire. I, I, I posit that this film is a satire on so many levels. Um, so, like... Um, Mr. Fudderman, Dick Miller, represents this sort of like the old school. Like, you know, he fought in World War II. Um, I don't know how old he's supposed to be. Probably not, you know. I think he's supposed to be sort of like late 50s or 60s. He's supposed to be retired. So I'd assume in his 60s. Um, but this idea that uh, he represents the old school. You know, this idea of like, you know, you only buy American. You only buy American Kentucky Harvester. Um, and this, uh, this thing about the Gremlins being in World War II. And... Um, you know that he says about uh, Billy's car and about the, car the comics as well. When he says, uh, "Hope to see your comics in with you know little Abner and so they don't run those anymore." He's the backwards face it. Um, he's the fair mongering. He is sort of like, you know to, to us today would be like the boomer that sort of generation, sort of that um, you know baby boomer generation. And I just find it fascinating that, like I say, that has that. Because you're going to get Mrs. Deaglin, who's also sort of representing sort of um, the... Um, uh, what's it? Miss Potter from the It's a Wonderful Life. That sort of, like, you know, the uh, unencumbered small-town capitalist overlord who will always make people's life a misery. That's like, do you not know who I am? And he's just vile to people throughout. Because they can be, because they own so much of the town. And... Uh, Sorry, just drinking my tea. Um, and it's not lost on me in the fact that uh, Will William Pelter, uh, Billy, works in a bank. Much like... So there's loads of... This thing has got so many... I think I made this preference last... This, this sort of note last year. 
that so many um, this has so many connections to its wonderful life. Like, you know, Billy works in a bank. It makes clear uh, that he, she's watching. His mum's watching. It's a wonderful life later on. Mrs. Deagle is clearly a sort of a stand-in for Mr. Potter, and so now you've got um, oh my God, what's her name? She's so fit in this. She's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, he becomes his girlfriend later on. She's like eighties beautiful. Um, but anyway. This idea that she wants to close places down because it's a dive. It's this elevated idea of what the small town America should be. And what it actually is. Like this dive bar. It's not really a dive bar. You see it later. It's actually just a bar. And everyone sort of had this memories there. And it's loaded. It's so sort of intrinsic to the town. Um, it becomes so incredibly important. And it, you, you hear the more stories about it. So she is like, she's the evil incarnate in this. Um, and this is why I think the gremlins themselves... And we'll get to this, but the gremlins themselves aren't evil per se. They they are dangerous, but they're not intentionally evil. Um, see this is this scene here. Sorry, so Mr. Deagle being presented by the the, the Bob Cratchit or the poor family of the of this area, you know, not able to pay their rent, about to get thrown out. Um, to make money, um, so she's there to make money. She's there. To th she's about to throw this family out on. Um, at Christmas, she's about to throw. She's intended to throw them out. They are like a Bob Cratchit. So you almost think that this film could go a very different way. This film could have gone down this sort of um, Christmas Carol. It's a Wonderful Life. Like you know, this film, the whole first act really presents all these attempts and all these sort of like staples of what you'd expect for a typical. Um, all these sort of typical things for that sort of like lesson learnt uh, Christmas story, you know, that people will learn something from this. However, all those people that should learn something don't because they are taken out in some way or another. Um, you are presented with these sort of characters. You get Mrs. Deagle, you get Mr. Fudderman, you get Jerry, played by Judge Reinhold soon. These are all the characters that will probably be a tr you know these are capitalist characters or sort of old school Americana characters, you know the Scrooge standing, which I know is a Victorian England thing, but by the by, um, and Billy is there as that sort of the the Jimmy Stewart sort of standing. He's the you know the the relatively progressive. He's uh, um, forward facing, but he's sort of you know naive. He's he's good, um, although a little dim at times. And so what you get is this idea of like, all these people should be visited by, or visited on by this this chaos, by this event, and it should change their view on Christmas. That should be it. It should be this thing of grouping together. But what you see in this is the chaos descends, and they don't, and then they, they don't learn their lessons, and they are presented then as, you know, this idea. It's quite a dark satire on that, that they won't learn their lessons, so they have to be taken out. Um, especially with the thing with the bank, anyway. I mean, she threatens to kill a dog. How can you... Ha but she's a cat owner, right? Not to say anything, but I'm a dog person rather than a cat person. Um, but this whole film also suggests, quite rightly... Well, rightly, rightly. But this film also suggests um, that uh, you have to be a prick in order to get on. So you see all the people that, you know, in the, the higher up and the more senior people in the town um, are all knobheads. Like, you know, I've said, like, you know, uh, Mrs. Deagle, Gerald, who you're meeting now in the bar, um, 
And it's, but when you meet the police later on as well, like they're all just like this thing of like you have to be a bit of a dick. All the nice people in this is are all the sort of the regular Joes in this family that like, you know are willing, usually downtrodden. But I mean they're in the bar now. Um, it's going to bother him now. What's this woman's name? But they're all ambitious and all this other stuff. So it's interesting. Um, there we go. Let's have a quick look at this. Um, and it's again this idea of the future. Phoebe Cates, uh, Phoebe Cats, uh, Phoebe Cates as Kate. Um, but this idea then of like he says there about you know we're looking to the future. The future is this. He's sort of like the greed is good. What is it from eighty four? I think it's eighty four. Is eighty four eighty five? No, eighty four. So this is the start of that greed is good era. Um, and I think what you find is like oh I find is that Jerry represents that big. T- you know, he's got that big coat with the the fur coat and stuff. He represents that sort of element of of eighties America, the yuppie America, um, but you're still more about this small town. This is more like the, the gathering of a small town, uh, and what it is to be a regular person. Sorry, just drinking the old tea there. Um, so yeah, I find it interesting that this film is very much uh, in line with that sort of thing. Sort of, just uh, yeah, we're doing good. Here you go, look, so she's sat in the kitchen. Uh, his mum is now sat watching It's a Wonderful Life. Now, she's watching the end of It's a Wonderful Life. And again, I'm going to say, like, you know, she has, she's shown to be looking sad, but that's the thing. But, um, I, again, I know I do this a lot. For me, I think a better part of this, if she's sort of meant to be, you know, watching this, it been to make that link would have been a much earlier scene in the film, would have had... Um, um, Jimmy Stewart's character um, standing up to Mr. Potter and having him watch her watching that scene because that would have mirrored um, some of the scenes. Or there's a scene, some couple of similar scenes of of Mr. Potter uh, against Billy. Sort of, you know, I think I think it would have been a nice little sort of mirroring and sort of paralleling of those story elements. Um, I like the fact you get the uh, the more of the inventions here. You get the egg, the egg cracker, which again, like, everything that he invents is actually a really good idea. Like every time, I mean, as a kid, I remember seeing this and going, "That's not a bad idea." It's those things in theory and practice. Like you need the engineering skills to do it. I don't think it works uh, all out, but uh, like I'd like to see that work. Because um, I think like someone got the right person to have it, I think you would end up with a really good invention. Um, so the other one, there's the other one later on, the juicer. Um, that. Uh, so here you go, father home. So it becomes this idea of the father being home, the sort of travelling salesman. Again, you know, um, <coughs> touching into these old American tro- <coughs> tropes. The other idea of the salesman on the road is very much an American door-to-door salesman. You don't really get him in this country much. But they are very much an American thing. And slightly European as well. Um, I like this. So we're going to get the introduction of Gizmo. So he's, he's, he's wrapped it. I want to know how long he's wrapped it for. Because um, it's like in a box. In wrapping paper. And it's, so it's a small small animal with no air hole. <coughs> no air holes in it. I know it's not real. But still. That's not the point. Um... So this is light sensitive, which is interesting. Uh, look, look. They've, see, they've got, he's got a remote dimmer for the lights, which that works. So there's a couple of inventions that do work. 
But um, right, anyway, let's focus on the introduction of Gizmo. Um, so we've got this wooden box, which is his carry box. <clears throat> Barney the dog. I wonder how many dogs they got to play Barney. Because um, I love Barney in this. This thing it jumps up now. Oh, he's got a whole head in the... <clears throat> so the, the dog actually wants to go... <coughs> the bar the dog who's playing Barney wants to go for whatever it is, the puppet. So this must have been interesting for a dog to be like, oh, what the hell is that furry little thing? Now, I ain't going to say this, because this is obviously some of those greats that got together. This is uh, written by Chris Columbus, directed by... <coughs> excuse me. Directed by Joe Dante. <coughs> oh, my God. And then produced by Steven Spielberg. Like, this is some of the greats of the 80s. And it shows on screen, because the special effects on this... The don't forget that this is eighty four again. So n little, to, no. Let's be honest. There are no computer effects in this. This is all practical. So each one of these things were built. <clears throat> and so what I remember is so Gizmo. This thing there was a, there was like different sizes of Gizmo um, uh, of the Mogwai. There was this little like hand puppety one that he's got in his arms, and then they had one that was like six feet tall. Uh, and they did all this the real like uh, that, and that had massive animatronics and stuff, and that was then used for um, close-ups. So when you see some of the close-ups, uh, and I can't remember which ones now, but you see them later on, some serious close-ups. They had this big one, and maybe not six feet tall, but at least four or five feet tall. Um, and so that's how they did these things with scaling and models and all these other things, and that's why it was almost you know, and also it's just to say. I mean, Gizmo spent has an awful lot of um, an awful lot of screen time, um, but some of the others, they have the other. I don't know, it's like four or five. When uh, Gizmo multiplies, like they don't get a huge amount of screen time. They're on for like a couple of minutes at most. Um, none of them particularly in detail, other than maybe Stripe and one of the others. Um, yet. They are still all built with such love, care, and sort of you know detail. Um, it's so well done. Like, I I always watch look back at films like this from this era where they've really dedicated time to the models and you go, that's amazing. Like you know, just the way that they move, um, the, the the attention to the fur and the sort of the way his ears have got look, look like. Um, you know, they've got veins and stuff in them. They look... I mean, also, they've made them adorable. Like, you know, they, they've gone for the um, the rule, haven't they? Sort of big eyes and a large head to make him... So that thing, like, yeah, there you go. There's one where he's flashed, where he's sort of dazzled there. That's the big one again. Um. So, yeah. So they have... They've used this, this idea of the modelling, this idea of the puppetry. is absolutely fantastic. Like, this is a lost art, in my, in my opinion. Uh, and the fact he can talk as well, like, it's this babying effect. Like, Gizmo is, ador is adorable because of this babying effect. Like, he has the sort of, like, like, the squeaky sort of cute voice. And also his sort of, uh, this bit where he's getting treated for having bashed his head. Um, is this little sort of stroppy face that he has. They've made him super cute. And he's got a little button toes. I, I think he's adorable. Like I used to have a, a gizmo. Not a real one, obviously. Like a, a, a plushie. The God knows where it is today. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think this... I, I can't say enough good about this puppetry. And it gets better. 
Um, there's, there's also some um, stop motion work later on. Um, and I think there's only like one or two scenes where I'm like, mm, well, that, that doesn't quite work for what you're trying to do. But for the most part, I, I think this the special effects in this film are like top notch. 90%, 95% of them work. Uh, and it, it sort of stays, you know, people have said like how, how I actually saw before I started watching this, I was just flicking through some things. There's quite a few people that, oh, this film hasn't aged well. And the, but they didn't say what elements, and so I'm curious to see what elements haven't aged well. Because for me, I think this this film has aged incredibly well. Um, I also think, as I say, that I think this film has been misunderstood for years. You know, people have just sort of bobbed it as a bit of a um, as a uh, like a horror, co- a festive horror comedy, and ignoring sort of the some of the satire elements that come into it later on. Um, I love, I love this as well. Uh, Corey Feldman, uh, as one of the like the kids from the town, having to deliver Christmas trees, dressed as a Christmas tree. Um, like it's the dumbest costume ever. Um, but uh, yeah, I can imagine again. It's one of those things I can just imagine. But, um, I love the like you say. I'm assuming school must be out at this point for him to be doing this like working for somebody. Fair play, but again. Fair play to him, like you know, this town works. Although they're not, they're not out. Must be a weekend, maybe, but um, because they actually have a scene for the end of school, don't they? Later on, so he must be, um, he must be at school or something. Um, here we go. So this this thing is an old thing for old films as well. Oh wow, I've just noticed that. So as he's watching this Clark Gable race car movie takes a sudden kind of guy which obviously comes that's the big version so this version here again sat in bed is the big version again that's the close-up version um so you got this Clark Gable movie is watching see that you can tell that you can tell because they've got much more detail much more puppetry going on in the face gives them a lot more emotion on those close-ups anyway um he was obviously watching this thingy, and obviously it comes back later on. He's also got a poster for the Road Warrior, so Mad Max, the Road Warrior. So again, this idea of uh, when he races the car later on, he's been influenced by this idea of action movies. I also love this is an interesting thing. Um, something that I think gets missed um, has been lost over time. Billy's a nerd. Like Billy is a full-on nerd. He's a geek. I love him. Um, you know, knows he's sort of like a, you know he's always fucking akin to it. Like you know, not only is he sort of a, enjoys cute animals, um, like like the Mogwai. Um, he has posters up in his room for all these different films of sort of different things. Um, he's got comics. He draws fantasy characters. There's a reference to D and D in the background in his room. Um, I'm trying to see if I can see it. So yeah, he's got this all these all these things for these old films, like. But this is a time when, you know, what's this? Here you go, Marvel Comics. He's got on his desk. Was it Marvel? Something? Anyway, he's got these things. Mark, um, Billy is a geek, and it, you know this would have been. He would have. It adds to this thing of being the outsider, of being the nerd. Um, it's quite a brave thing to, from to make him a hero. Frank was Frazetta art all over the place on the desk. Right, so this is horror. This is horrific. Gizmo Mogwai giving birth now, um, and this is how these things work. So you add water, literally just add water, 
Um, and little ones pop out. Conan comic, DC Conan comic there. Um, <coughs> or Marvel Conan comic, sorry, with the DC underneath it. Um, what we get, though, um, and I struggle with this because like, today I'm looking out the window now. I'm watching this on my laptop and I'm looking out the window. And there's a proper foggy, misty day. So that air out there is wet. Like, it's proper sort of like, you know, uh, naff. So Gizmo, like Mogwai is musty. You, you must go to like a really dry climate to it, for him to exist. So taking them to sort of like middle America where there's loads of snow. <laughs> you know, even San Francisco. That's the other problem. Like, it comes from San Francisco, like Chinatown, San Francisco. Like, that's where Ron, uh, his dad, Ron Peltz was at the start of the film. It notoriously wet there. You know, it rains. It rains quite a bit. It's always. It's got fog banks and stuff there. Like, how does he keep it dry or keep it away from moisture all the time? And also, what do they drink? Like, do they need moisture? Like, is that the only way they can do it? Like, do they eat things that then give them sustenance and water? Don't know. Um, they are alien. I mean, that's the thing to realise. They are alien. So maybe it doesn't work. This is it. Like, he pans across them all here. And they've all got great detail in. But they're all... <clears throat> but they're not designed to be all things. Like, I think you can see that some of them are being puppeted, some of them are automatic. This one at the back here seems to follow a motion. Um, ah, Scrooge! See, there you go, look. Going back to this thing about Scrooge, look. Uh, a Christmas Carol, where Corey Feldman is on the bed, the comic sort of sat next to him is a Disney's Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, comic. So this is going back to this idea of sort of Wonderful Life, Christmas Carol. Like they want you to keep that in mind, firmly in mind when you're watching this. Um, what does it say? Toxigen ninety in frequent use. I wonder if that's a song. Let's see what that is. Like this again, like background. Let's just quickly Google that. Toxigen ninety. Um. There we go. Toxigen. 90. Ah, here you go. It's actually the first thing is a Gremlins reference. Uh, references you probably missed. So there you go. Uh, uh, right, I'm going to see if I can find it now. Um... Ah, Toxins on Behind Randall Peltzer was created by crew member Jay Davis to keep nosy people away from the gremlin puppets. The studio's fire marshal received several complaints from passers-by worried about the non-existent chemical. So it's a completely non-existent chemical that was used to scare people off so they didn't go and look at the puppets. Excellent. And that's a great little reference. <coughs> um, <coughs> I kind of like as well that they're all playing different games uh, and that Barney just lying there like the other... <clears throat> oh, see straight away here's this thing again about this idea of the capitalism <clears throat> Ron Peltzer's first assertion should be that look this could this could be what you know every every kid in America could want one of these we could sell these which goes back to another film two years later actually 1986 uh, Little Shop of Horrors at the end of the film it's um uh, Lewis Tully's not Lewis Tully. Jesus Christ! Rick Moranis' character is approached to sell Audrey too, 
you know, it's the Audrey 2 to be sold all across America. Every household wants an Audrey 2. Same thing, this idea of sort of like, in every house in America is a bit of a phrase, isn't it? Having this in every house in America. So this idea of having a, a Mogwai in every house in America, like, it's part of the American dream, isn't it? This has been an idea of being able to sell uh, something that becomes a national product. Um <clears throat> you know, something in every house in America, driven by this idea of capitalism. So the dad in this is no better than some of those other people we've seen. Um, Ron is no better than sort of Gerald or Mrs. Deagle, because if he was able to get that kind of money, like he would, like he would definitely do those things. And again, it's this thing of the older generation sort of being quite strapped up in this stuff. Now, Barney, I don't know how they did this with this dog. <laughs> And again, I know there's like this idea of puppetry, but that does not look like a puppet. That looks like a real dog. I could be wrong, and I'd need to understand that. But a dog wrapped up in those lights. Um, um, so we know that obviously wasn't Mrs. Deagle. It was, you saw it as it was Stripe, as they were going to bed, smiling about it. Um, the electric hammer. That's another one. Kind of like that as a good idea. Um... Peltzer. I like the fact that he's got a brand as well, Peltzer. So this is the Peltzer coffee maker. Um, but there's already a coffee maker exists, so this is a bit of an unusual one because in many other cases, like he wants to, he wants to be able to make something that uh, doesn't exist, like the bathroom buddy or the the electric hammer, the fly swat, all these things, like the chemical thing. Oh, and it's powered by a. What the hell is that? Passion fruit, star fruit. So that <laughs> it's. Something here is being powered by something. Through this goes back to this idea that um, things can be powered by potatoes. You know, you can use them as a battery. So science experiment. Hey, you go look. So Corey Feldman is still in school. So when is he doing this um, job delivering um, uh, Christmas trees? It must be an evening and weekends job. I'm going to take it as that. <clears throat> so now they're going to show him. Again, the irresponsibility of this for science, fair enough. And this is where I sort of I sort of feel less less you know, less sympathy for sort of for Billy. because um, they have the So is is it Mogwai? No, it's not Gizmo he's brought along, is it? It's one of the others. because um, he's now producer of the one. So they can all do it. It's not just like there's a father one that produces it, which we learn later on because it's Spike that jumps into the pool. Um but you now get two. And how quick they grow. They are sort of like, you know, able to sort of communicate and um, pretty quick. Like, look, look, that's seconds, and it's now stood up and communicating with the other one. That's fascinating. Um, the other thing I'll say is, I want to say is this set, if you look over Billy's left shoulder now, or right shoulder, sorry. No, left shoulder, sorry, yeah. You can see a cinema in the background. <clears throat> In, in in a film in a, in a year's time, a DeLorean's going to fly down that same path, same street, and uh, collide into that cinema, because uh, this town um, is also going to twin for or parts of this town are going to twin for uh, Hill Valley, um, and uh, it will also then appear. We've talked about we talked about them one of the first episodes of Twilight Zone, and I forget where else it appears, but yeah, this is Hill Valley. Uh, it's a set, uh, part of the Warner Brothers set, um, that was used frequently in different ways. So some of the interiors and exteriors were used in different ways. Here we go, Mr. Fudman's initial thing about gremlins. Foreigners put... 
There you go. Gremlins have brought down the planes and the big ones. WII. I I wonder about Mr. Fudderman. Like, he's when he has a drink and this stuff, and there's all this bitterness. Little little mini gremlins. There's there's something like there's, there's, there's a xenophobia and a racism to Mr. Fudderman. Like that's again that's the point, doesn't it? This this sort of isolationist, um, super, you know, supreme isolationist idea. This idea of America first. Like Mr. Fudderman would vote for Donald Trump. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, and uh, you know, he would also believe Q. Like no doubt, like he believes conspiracy theories. He's a bit thick. But the thing is, he. Uh, <coughs> Not only that, he um, he represents that sort of core of America. Of like you know, that, um, America is great, but this mistrust of the rest of the world, that everything foreign is is you know out to get is is lesser, but also undercuts. You know, it's not this idea of like um, a rising tide helps all ships. It's you have to sink everybody else's ship in order for us to rise. That sort of that he has that sort of mentality. Um, um, one of the things I'm curious about for all this um, is the relationship between these two. So between um, Kate and Billy, is they've clearly known each other for a while. Like he's supposed to be in his early twenties and so the stuff. So he's not that far out of school. I assume he may have gone to college, may have not. But <coughs> this idea, but she starts. She's alluding to. She's talking about how depressive people get it. And the suicide rate's going up. She later gives the explanation as to why. She tells the story. We'll get to that when it happens. But I, I've always assumed that they've known each other for years. Like, does she, is she not from this town? Did she... Oh, I think I've just made it. So it might... Because I always thought to assume they went to school together and stuff. But maybe... <coughs> um, so I'm going to add some headcanon in here. So Billy, Billy is um, has lived in this town his entire life. Like he's been here as a kid. He went to school here. He now works at the bank. He he is um, the Jimmy Stewart character in this. I get a feeling that Kate and her family, her mum at least, um, moved to this town after the events of what happened um, in the first film. Um, <coughs> not the first one, sorry. She, when she gives this information about what happened to her when she was younger and her dad, I now think that, that fam the family moved to uh, Kingston Falls after that event. So that's why he doesn't know about it. There you go, I'm adding that in. That's not even covered in the, in the novelisation. I'm adding to the novelisation. Um, <coughs> but yes, she's so pretty. I, mean, I, I always wonder why she l left out, like, left... Acting? Did she leave acting? I don't know, but um, yeah. Um, I forget her bloody name again now. She's she's, she's such an eighties um face. Um, Phoebe Cates. Like I wonder like what she did. Did she do? Because I always remember from this, you know, these eighties films. Um, I'm just looking like she's done. She's done a load of stuff. I mean, she still works. Um, no, ninety four. 2001-2015 so she's not worked for a long time uh, drop dead fred criminals 2 like yeah 
Phoebe Cates, I wonder why she must have stopped acting for a certain purpose. Um, yeah. So much looked into. Oh, she married Kevin Klein, and she has two children, so they don't, she doesn't really need to, I suppose, which is a shame. But, uh, yeah, good luck. Well done to Kevin Klein. Ego, see, this is another thing. where They, they like to reference things with the movies in this. So you've had... Um, it's a Wonderful Life, telling you the kind of story you're supposed to be watching. You've then had Clark Gable's... Um, neat! Uh, you've then had Clark Gable's racing film, <clears throat> and now you've got uh, in the original Invasion of the invasion of the Body Snatchers, and the pod with the pod people. So you get the thing of the pods. And so, <clears throat> again, then while the gremlins are not... Um, replacements for people that exist in the town. They are not pod people. It's not this isn't an invasion movie. What we do have is um creatures <coughs> that represent our worst base instincts that then sort of are coming through pods. I mean it has those image of the pods in his, his loft later. So this this is what this film does that I think is so so good. Um is it does start to show it foreshadows everything. Like it tells you so much up front, and it's really clever at doing it. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's good. Again, like this other thing of up close. You get these are the up close ones where they're eating. They clearly don't have one. They've got several. Um, they've got several of them, but these up close ones are really big, and there might even be people in them. I'm not sure. But it's uh, it's just incredibly well done puppetry. It gives them much more muscle control, much more sort of like, you know, those bags and the airbags or the what they call bladders, that's what I was looking for, that did all the work. So it's really good. Really clever stuff. Um one of the things here is another one up close. Um so it's just they did these massive sets <coughs> to do some of this. Um a brain just sat on the table. Amazing. Um, I think one of the things that I'm interested in is, is obviously all those. They've now at after midnight. It's now what you can see there. It's two twenty uh, in the morning. <clears throat> but one of the things to go back if you go back to um, Billy Room, like Gizmo says, no, like he he sort of has this feeling of like, no, I'm not hungry. I don't want it. Uh, what would happen if this is a big question? What would happen if Gizmo became a gremlin? Like, if Gizmo transforms from a Mogwai to a Gremlin, like, you know, does that change his personality? Does he become vicious? Don't know. <clears throat> Interesting stuff. Also, I, it annoys me that he doesn't know, that Billy doesn't know how, um, doesn't know what time it is. He's watching, um, he's watching uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which the original film's about an hour and a half long, maybe an hour 40. It's 20 past 2, <laughs> so he put it on after midnight. So he must know the time. So, you know, poor on Billy, bad timekeeping. But then he is this naive sort of character. Okay, so the morning after, we've now got the um, the pods. These things have been formed, these, these sort of pupae, these sort of uh, chrysalis. And again, fantastic design before... Um, no, no, following Alien. You've had Alien, I suppose, nineteen seventy nine. So before Aliens, though, with the feels of them, you get these things, and they look they look great. These used to freak me out. But um, one of the things I'd like to, you know, how did they form them? Like in this thing of um, the, <clears throat> one of the things that's to, I'm also curious about is um, 
the old the old Chinese man who also would have given him Audrey too. So again, like, you know, that's a weird link. But the old uh, Chinese guy at the, at the store, um, that he, you know, and he says, um, you know, there's a responsibility. Um, he he's clearly gone through this before. Like he's known that this is going to happen, hasn't he? Like he knows this stuff. He's seen Gremlins. Uh, and I'm curious about that story. Was there, where's the prequel story? Hey, eh? where's the the prequel book or the prequel short film that tells me about that young Chinese guy that had to go through this this, this event in a Chinese village somewhere? That'd be awesome. Um. Um. See, this is clever as well. I love that you you introduce the science teacher, which makes sense. And he's able to give you the sort of this sort of explanation, give you the exposition as to why these things happen. And I think it works really well because it's again, it's sort of like you know, you need it, um, but I'm glad that they have it, and it actually works pretty well. Like he's not just a character who just happens to know this stuff. Like he is a science teacher. Like he's not a professor. He's not like a scientist per se. Is like you know, <clears throat> he is mobile technology. There you go. Um, but he is a uh, a science teacher, which means. He's this this stuff about you know um, metamorphosis and pupae and, and chrysalis. Like he knows all this stuff. There was Steven Spielberg going past in that little thing, Robbie the robot. Um, <clears throat> so there's some interesting stuff going on here. Like say so if you, that's the scene where he's at the convention. There's some stuff going. There was a H.G. Uh, Wells time machine in the background. You have got Robbie the robot. Steven Spielberg goes past on a, on a wheelie cart for some reason. Um, there you go. Look, the time machine's now disappeared. That's interesting. Um, yeah, there's some good stuff, and that sort of seems completely different to the tonally to the rest of the film. Um, um, <clears throat> even the even the like, even the president of the bank is scared of Mrs. Deagle. Which is always uh, fascinating. I love the way she pushes in just to be mean to so many of the people. Like she's vile. Um, she's the kind of villain that you just love to hate. You know, she is a proper villain, but like Cruella Deville level villain, isn't she? Um, <clears throat> but it's clear that like nobody in the town likes her, but they they clearly have this. She has this control over them. Um, this is this one thing you, you learn about hearts in this. Um, it, it it shows you this idea of like an elephant's heart versus a rabbit's heart versus a mouse's heart. It shows you how fast they're. It's one of the only things you are shown on video on this that doesn't pay off, or at least doesn't influence the way sort of like the film works. I could be wrong, but let me have a think about that. But I don't think it does. Um, so again, like this is where this video probably could have been something about uh, butterflies changing or moths or what are these things about you know uh, use the use of cacti, uh, cacti, bloody hell, um, chrysalis to you know how they sort of morph and change from a caterpillar to a butterfly. That would have been a really good use of it. He's like you know he's been influenced by what's going on, so he's showing the kids um, the eggs now hatching. Because um, this is interesting, like you say, there's. <clears throat> a um, the life cycle of 
a gremlin. Let's just quickly talk about the life cycle of a gremlin. So a gremlin, or even a mogwai, so whatever you want to call them, um, they are they they are produced in the form of whatever parented them. So if Gizmo, as a furry little mogwai, gets wet, he produces more mogwai. They produce, you know. So, but those mogwai then follow the same rules. If you feed them after midnight, then they become gremlins. <clears throat> if, however, a gremlin gets wet, it then produces more gremlins. Um, and so that sort of like, you know, that becomes them in their final form. And only two... So those three rules only apply to a mogwai. Because in the, in the, the third rule, um, the third rule about feed them after midnight, does not apply once they become a gremlin because they've, they've changed into their final state. But when they get wet... They produce more gremlins. So those gremlins don't need to go through a mogwai phase. So really, the mogwai, fi- <coughs> the mogwai phase only exists because of gizmo. But if you were to wipe out all of the mogwai but keep a gremlin, you would only ever get gremlins later. So it's an interesting sort of like... Is it, I, wonder, you know, I know this is it's an alien, they're aliens, I know it's not something real, but like... It doesn't make a great deal of sense from a, like an evolutionary sort of standpoint. Like, what purp? Oh no, maybe. Like, we'll say, what purpose does the Mogwai phase uh, serve? What purpose does it serve? I don't know. Like, they're cute. Is it so they get parented? Is it because they don't? You know, they don't seem to need um, that level of support and parenting, much like any other sort of mammal would. You know, they don't need to be sort of raised for a period of time before they sort of reach adulthood. They seem pretty much ready straight away. Um, so it's interesting, like, you know, there are other things with other uh, monsters. They've given a life cycle. Alien, for example, the xenomorph has a pretty uh, specific life cycle. Tremors, the graboids have been given a pretty specific um, life cycle. Yeah, but gremlins is a bit is a bit mixed up. Like, I wonder if like, where do they come from? Like, is there more to them? I know it's in the there's an origin story in the book, but not a full explanation. Um. So is this when's the first time we see a gremlin? So you're in the schoolroom now, and you're seeing sort of like you're hearing the footsteps and seeing things knocking around. But when this isn't the first time you see a gremlin. He's the this is the first time he sees a gremlin. So this is the first time someone sees a gremlin, isn't it? Um, now, do you see his hand? I think you do. I think this is where you're about to see his hand. You go, yummy, and he reaches for the candy bar. Um, so let's have a look. Okay, is he going to do it? No, so you don't. So you put the candy bar in. So they do. They hold back. So again, like it's another thing I like about this film. They hold back on this pretty. Um, they're pretty restrained on what this is. There's a reveal. So when's the reveal? So he's being bitten. Have a safe and have a safe and happy holiday. So the school's out. Uh, this is probably the, the week or so before Christmas, isn't it? Um, so when do we get to see the first gremlin? Is it the one that jumps out the cupboard? So again, this is where it starts to lean into the horror. We are now about 49, 50 minutes into the film. Right, 49, 26. It's now just gone past in the film. And you've had no horror. Like, it's been small town. This is the turning point. This is like Act 2, I suppose, going to well, the height of Act 2. 
this is where it starts to lean into the horror. This film started to really freak me out as a kid. Um, ah, the hand here collects the, gets the phone. Um, oh yeah, this is and this is so it's what so well done because um, and I think about this a lot with films. Uh, I'm trying to think of who it was that said it. Like, if you're going to do a horror comedy, it's a bit like with Ghostbusters as well. Like the horror, oh that brain, that's a continuity error. If the brain, um, sorry, if the horror needs to be taken seriously for the comedy to work. Uh, and for the for the horror to work, the comedy needs to be taken seriously. You need the two to be work as a as a sort of in tandem. Like you can't always mix the two. Like if you're gonna have a horror comedy, the horror needs to be straight horror. And in this, like although the gremlins can become funny later on, like they are still legit dangerous. Um, and there's some funny moments in this film. Like even as gr- as the gremlins grow, like you know there's some really good moments. But this moment here of him, he's, he's, his hand's been ripped open. This is it now. When the gremlin sort of like comes out of the closet, comes out of the, closet, comes out of the cupboard and attacks Billy. This is to, there you go. That moment there, the first time you see one, it's just a flash. And, you know, that's it. You get a, a glimpse of one. And then it sort of, it throws it a bit and it runs off. You just get this notion of sort of like, they've changed. What the, what the crap was that I just saw? I know because I've seen this from a million times, but this is it. This is the moment when it sort of it goes. You now see, so you still haven't seen them in detail, but you see the things they're doing. So you get a, bl- a slightly blooded um, gizmo on a dartboard. He gets hurled down a, a laundry chute. But this is where you see them for the first time, and um, her cookies are crap, by the way. <laughs> She's making gingerbread men, and they don't look good. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, this bit here, when you start, to, this is when you first see them, and this is where, like I say, this whole scene of her, like if you were to transpose this into a different film, or even to take this, <clears throat> this from the moment she walks upstairs, you could edit it slightly, take out the gizmo a bit, but this scene of, of Billy's mum in um, in the the house in the kitchen around. If you were to um, transpose this, this is what this is of fifteen. It's got these horror elements. It works as a horror, like it just works. Like you see, the eggs are broken. You know, you see these things, and you you know it's. <clears throat> she answers the phone. Like this panic, this real worry. phone home you know like they, they have pop culture references straight away like this this is this is where this idea of you know when people say oh it's loaded with nostalgia and, and to load with references this was 1984 and yet we've had like a convention with like you know the time machine robbie the robot we've had an et reference this one's like you had an indiana jones reference at the start of this film with rocking ricky rialto um this film's loaded with pop culture references, especially towards the end. And how they managed to get bloody uh, Snow White signed off for this thing is baffling. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a different era. It was a different era. Like yeah. that's all. Uh, so the mu- I've never noticed that there are handprints in the dust on the stereo. So the music's now playing a Christmas song, but there are handprints, gremlin handprints in the dust. Little little um, details like that are so so good. Um, it, I've never noticed that before. And it's not, you know, it's not one of those things you always notice, but on the film set, it was important enough that 
having watched this for 30 odd years like that's important for someone so um but this thing here this this moment here so someone's just thrown something at her through the from the kitchen um and you get the shadow like it's played for laughs like this has got the same looney tunes humor you know that you expect which is ramped up in the second one but is so well done here that sort of you know you it feels that looniness but it's still legit horror yeah you see that these things are um dangerous and i think the first full reveal of a gremlin eating a uh a gingerbread man and it's so well designed like this it's lizard-esque it's got that the shoulder plate the ears that move they fan up and down um the 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 like the scaly skin the little beeping up to the buds on its feet, the little sort of like shell-like tail. Oh, it's got caught in the blender. So that the first one gets meeting, it gets pulled into a blender and splattered. Like there is no, that, that green blood. Like there's no messing around. This film does not mess around. Neither does Billy's mum. Billy's mum does not fuck about. Like, you know, don't mess with uh, Mrs. Peltzer. Um, she's ace. And then like this next one, like so she attacks this one here, throwing plates at her. It's laughing. It's the way, it... like she, like you know, this the 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 energy with which she's attacked. Like she's killed one in a um a blender. She's just knifed one. She's just knifed one to death. Um. Oh my god! I've never noticed that before. He's now lying in the background with the knife still in him, wriggling around on the thing. So she's pierced him to the thing. Now you've got the one flea and tick killer. So it's a pestilence killer. He's been forced into the microwave. <laughs> And he explodes in the microwave. So, in a period of... Let me just check this out. So, from 50... 52-ish, where she goes up to the stairs, to 56. So, this is a four to five minute scene of just full-on um, violence. You know, you, she's just killed three uh, gremlins in that period. Like, this tells you, firstly, the sort of, like... Whilst they're a nuisance, they're not at this point. They're not hugely dangerous. Like in in a in a proper horror film, they'd have butchered her, but she takes out three. So it's weird to say, oh, in small numbers, like it recognizes that they're small. <clears throat> and this is the problem with like Chucky, isn't it? I know people say this. Like, what would you do if you were attacked by a killer doll? Well, I'll just kick it and run, like you would. Um, and so this film recognizes that that they're actually they're only like a foot and a half tall. They're not huge. Um, and so it's not the. This is where this. This is the same with zombies, isn't it? That sort of thing with the slow-moving zombies. So I just run away. It's not hard when they're on their own. When there's a one of them or even three of them, you could probably tackle them. They're not hugely dangerous. They're in, you know, like you wouldn't want to get messed up with them. Oh, I've never said that before. Like, you know, there's Spike hiding in the tree with his glowing eyes. When they're number, it's more about the numbers. So when Spike finally, oh, it's not Spike. It's just the the other one. So when um um oh, so when yeah so when they're on their own individual they're a nuisance they're dangerous but they're a nuisance like this one almost kills isn't it it chokes with a tinsel um so they you know you can't beat them all but he does get his head chopped off in a second this is more about numbers when the town is overrun later on and this comes back to the pod people thing like this idea of the pod people, it's about being overwhelmed. Um, 
and again, like, this is where you could take this as being, you know, if you wanted, if you really wanted to start digging into this idea of the satire, they come from China. Um, they they represent, they represent, um, at least in the, the eyes of America, um, foreign animals, foreign sort of dissidents, foreign whatever. And so to have a few in the in in the mix is dangerous, but not it was a nuisance, but not dangerous. But to be overwhelmed is um, is the true you know is the true danger, is the true horror when these things overrun you and they start to sort of infiltrate um, American traditions. So that's the that's the true nature of this film. Or maybe I'm wrong, or that's what I can take from it. Is this this idea of the the gremlins represent um, foreignness, the fear of foreign? I don't, I don't think this was the point of. I don't think Chris Columbus is a racist or, or Joe Dante or Steven Spielberg. This is a satire, and I think you can take it as that. Most of you could just say this is a monster film. This is just a creature feature, like a horror film in that sense. But you can quite easily sort of look at this and go, oh yeah, small town America being overrun, you know, and um, what one of the most uh, um, heartwarming um most of us heartwarming and sort of you know middle america traditions of christmas this small time christmas it is um is, is you know this idea that being infiltrated is really important it's dangerous that's where the fear is you know this idea we're going to lose middle america um because of being overrun by these foreign concepts our traditions being corrupted and and taken over by these sort of elements now you could also say if you wanted there's other ways of looking at it you could say that they represent capitalism you know like this idea of uh they were bought and sold and so you know this idea of if uh they represent rampant capitalism this idea of like um mrs deagle and, and gerald and all these people they're the res- you know, they are the cause of this because you know, ron's just as bad not yeah rob Ron Pelter is just as bad as them. This idea of wanting to sell them, everyone, you know, one in every home in America. Again, this idea of small town America, like losing our values to something new. This idea of commercialism ramping up, and so that's why you get again. Is it hard to say this idea of commercialism? You know, because this idea that of them watching Snow White at the end, or being pulled into a single place, between mindless, you know, violent gremlins taken over by impulses. Um, yeah, there are there are arguments to be made that that's what this film is actually about. It's not about just these little. You know, they represent something, uh, and Billy is sort of like the defendant of small town America values of our old school America values. Um, you know, why is it not Gerald that sort of uh, Jerry that gets um, becomes the hero? You know, um, and here we go <laughs> holding his nose. So you've now Stripe has just jumped into the YMCA pool and it's bubbling like a bitch. Um, so if a little drop, and I love this look of, you know, you've seen what happens. A small jar produces five. A drop of water produces one. How much does a pool create? And I love the way it looks, the way it bubbles and the way it does this thing, the, the smoke coming off it. A great effect. But <laughs> I love the way Billy's like, fuck this, I'm done, son. Um, I'm out. Yeah, you are out. Like, there's no way. Bum, 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 bum. Um, it doesn't show it here. If I'm right, no, it doesn't. Um, but I think it's later on. 
because again like they would keep going as well like if one was birthed this is the interesting if one's birthed into the pool does that one then start birthing do they have to reach a state where they're still birthing uh, but later on, when you get to see them gestating in the back of Spike, later in the, in the pool, where you see the little ones. Um, here we go. The two police officers, the the usual... The two, the two local police, uh, you know, local police, sheriff and, and whatever. Um, isn't there a reference to this at the time? Um, is it when... It, it, Corey Feldman calls in later on and they make reference. Is this like the last Christmas when you called in about this? Called in about that? Um, so. See, so they don't start out like that. Well, they do. That's the thing. You know, Spike jumping in the pool. They, don't, they, they weren't Mogwai. They all come out as, um, as more gremlins. So. They don't start off like that. Oh, uh, yeah, they did. Okay, this is the bit I was talking about. This is the bit with some. There's some. This bit here with Spike. Is claymation, and it looks like claymation. Now, is it bad? Not really, actually. No worse than other claymation, but it's it's on just long enough to uh, um, to work. There we go. So the Fudderman's the Fudderman house, right, Murray? Uh, so this is the Fudderman house. Um, this in itself could be a sitcom you know this is that sort of like um life with you know was it like uh, wife of the married with children that sort of thing so this is an idea of an earlier that tv is massive damn foreign tvs Zena, so is it, i love that Zena, i don't know if Zena exists anymore as a manufacturer um I love the fact he finally gets gets a gets a foreign film with subtitles, which is probably like the you know the worst thing for Murray Fudderman to find. Um, eighty, their house is fascinating as well because it looks like a, it looks like a decorated barn. It's a really interesting sort of build. Um, our place. So this, you know, you look. I'm trying to look at see if there's anything else like where this was built or whatever. But these Americans, it's a big house as well. Like it's a farmhouse, isn't it? Because he's obviously a farmer of some kind. I assume so. Anyway, I've always assumed that the Fuddermans were a farm. That's why he's got the plough. Otherwise, it just makes no sense. <coughs> um, but this bit here, where it comes through the this, the Kentucky Harvester, it's it's it's, it's his fears realised. He's literally said gremlins. Um, it's his fears realised, like his Kentucky Harvester, his American product overtaken with foreign gremlins uh, and coming after him, specifically coming after him and his house, his family. Um, it, it gives it off, gives him PTSD. But it's, uh, it's this is exactly what he's been talking about. So this is where I think, like, the hero... Um, oh, my God. The hero of the film obviously represents, I think, a sort of a more um, progressive uh, ideal. Um, but he's also a traditionalist. That's the other thing. Is like Billy is a traditionalist. Like he represents that sort of thing of traditionalism. <clears throat> but this film seems to be more a watch and more like, oh, it's got a slight conservative bent. But that's sort of like the, the fact that Murray Fudderman was right. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trading with the rest of the world. It just means you've got to be careful. 
you know, <laughs> having the mail thrown back at him. So it's this now little series of vignettes where you sort of this way the the horror has gone. You've had the horror moments, like the kitchen scene, um, and and also the invasion of thing is like the invasion of the with the tractor. It's funny, but has that tinge of horror. This is where we start to lean into this idea of the horror comedy. Um, you start to get like you know the funny. I love that the post this one the the one playing with the. Uh, the traffic lights um, is hilarious. Um, the thing as well, I mean, having like having uh, Gizmo and Spike suggests to me that there is a there is a sort of like an uh, Spike is like an alpha gremlin, like he is a leader gremlin, um, and Gizmo isn't. I wonder if this because he looks very much like the others, and I wonder if there is this sort of thing of. Um, if you were to look into the sort of social grouping of gremlins or mogwai, there would be like an alpha one, the leader of the pack, um, natural sort of thing. And then this is obviously, you know, Gizmo was survived because he wasn't an alpha. Hmm. Interesting. Um, here we go. It's where they get started getting all the, all the calls in about the craziness that's going on. Um, sorry, this is the thing about the Fudderman's house. Someone's crashed through the Fudderman's house. Um, there you go, the Fudderman's have been. So there's a freak accident in the Fudderman's house, and he's going like, it's obviously the Gremlins. And even even now, now they've seen Gizmo, they're still like, this is nonsense. Um, but, but it tells you that this idea, this notion of, you know, um, Authority, it's always in films you see this, like the authority figures can't believe the hero. But then, you know, often there's this frustration of going, well, yeah, why can't they just believe him? But let's be, let's be honest, if you did, if you were the same position, would you believe someone um, that came in and started saying this stuff? Even if you then heard a coincidental incident, would you have that? Oh, okay. Well, you must be right. Like I often think that with the, with these sort of authority figures, but like, yeah, of course you wouldn't. That's nonsense. Um. So yeah, the police in this, like you know, they are they are bumbling and stuff, but they're sort of it. It makes sense. I I accept it to an extent. Right. We're now at the Mrs. Deagle estate. Now this is one of my favourite bits. Like she's a clearly a, a cat woman, property owner. She's a, an estate agent, like an um or a real estate. Uh, thing she's got open house a sign there for open house she's obviously owned some of these things um and again like you know this idea of making it uh when you see the other houses you've seen you've seen if there's like lighter lighter wood lighter wallpaper she's got dark wood uh much more heavy wallpaper like it's supposed to look a lot more victorian to me like she's supposed she's supposed to look like the scrooge um i hate christmas carols um So no soliciting. So here you go. So yeah, yeah, this is hilarious. I love this so much. The gremlins sort of looking down, especially when they're wearing hats, but nothing else, or earmuffs on the side of their heads that aren't even covering their ears. Um, I think that I don't know if that's puppetry, but the way it's been held, like the way again the the, the gremlin messing with her uh, seat elevator. Um, this bit here, there's something interesting. In this bit, like she's terrified of them. So they've come for me. Right, so that tells me she's obviously she's religious in some way, and a lot of her she's got her hair tied up, so she obviously wears a wig the rest of the time. 
but she she's obviously had this fear that her behavior is is evil if she goes shooting up this looks so much fun uh and there we go fly 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 mrs deagle fly um boom and there we have now had the launching of the deagle and christmas can start that's killed her like there's no doubt about it that's just killed mrs deagle um i always assumed that the fuddermans were killed um i always assumed the fuddermans were killed in in the the tractor thing they obviously come back in the second film but but um mrs deagle's clearly did this is where it goes over to that next level like they're also attacking santa um and this why are they, they're not sure what they're doing to him but they're uh biting onto him and sort of like you no know, there's some that are more vicious than others when it comes to gremlins um but the police are now seeing it and they're not doing anything they're proper scared um not prepared for this kind of thing and again i like this idea and it, i wish we had more of this in in there was more british or european horror that approached this idea of sort of like small town small village you've seen it with like uh, what's it like hot fuzz does it with um with action which i think is great but like you know this idea of like rural um uh rural horror that sort of thing i think there's, there's some some good stuff we could do there like you're able to contain it um but again like you know uh cory feldman holding his own there against them all and uh this way the car the police car now crashes it does it turn over let me just wait and see because their brakes don't work the brakes have been cut by gremlins excellent car crash this bloody hell into the insurance thing so boom so someone's died there this is where it starts to go crazy this is one of those things where um when you watch these films like this like gremlins or poltergeist is a good example um or the monster squad is another good one but you have like a supernatural element or something happen to a small town um and you and then sort of like you guys like how how does a town get past this because you've now got, like, you know, Corey Feldman ringing into Rockin' Rick and Rialto to say there's little green guys. And they do say there's, like, a mass hysteria. They they, they they sort of, like, you know, at the end of the film, I think they sort of say it was a, it was a what's it, of mass hysteria and something or other. Um, but, like, it's that thing of, like, how would you get past this reality? You've seen something. and like you, People are telling you that you were crazy. I always think it's a shame that that was never addressed. Like, you didn't go back to Kingston Falls and they're like, oh, no, no, this town is messed up. A bit like what halloween kills sort of tried to do now i think halloween kills overplays it i love that film but it overplays it because i think the killings that michael myers did in the first film uh is is a small thing like it kills like four or five people but this film like wipes <laughs> gremlins not only did it, it's not just a human in a mass killing people like they're a supernatural entity and then um, they wipe out pretty much a town and i'd love to see how that is sort of like you know addressed and covered up um and this idea of sort of like you know someone like fox Mulder or the x-files going like you know oh well we've got a, we've actually got a list of the of these of where they've happened throughout the world um this you know we, we've got in, records of incidents of gremlin outbreaks here here and here and here and so that sort of thing that'd, that'd be really cool but um especially during world war Two, uh official records of them um, I don't know if you, there was is it under the shadow in the shadows. There's a film recently with Chloe Chloe Grace Moretz, which was all right. It was pretty good. That's got gremlins in it. And that was an interesting 
World War Two sort of feature about a gremlin sort of taking out a plane. Um, anyway, now into like Dory's Tavern, and this is another one where you're sort of we're getting into this this mix of horror and comedy. Like we realise that that these things are just our worst base instincts. Like there's the you see some of the things that's going on. You know, heavy drinking, uh, smoking. Like the one's got like four or five cigarettes in its mouth. Ah, oh, there's something you can see the sort of the the wire on its arms for the puppetry and stuff. But they're laughing at each other. Like this is just debauchery, you know. Sort of like all the drinking, the smoking, the dancing, and now there's going to be a flasher one. Um, I love the fact that he's a flasher, got the flasher coat, but all the other ones are naked, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, the tummy expanding. Like this, when he gets when he gets to the jazz table. Um, the thing is, I see that this is no different to some university parties I went to, or what I would expect college parties to be like in the States. So it's that thing of going, yeah, um, is it, it, this is bad, but is it really sort of like, you know, is it probably not the worst real party that some people have been to? Um, but again, it's that idea again of this, this small town being overrun by something. In this case, we're now looking at vices. You know, they sort of like, they represent the vices. You can take it in that sense as well. This scene represents all the, the worst possible vices that can then sort of perpetuate in a small town America. Um, alcoholism, uh, drug dependency, sort of, you know, um, just, you know, partying all the time, all that other stuff. Uh, really you know, preventing a sort of pro- productive sort of society. Um, this this cool jazz go doopy doo. Um, it's it's just like these jokes are just sort of going. But this is what I'm saying. Like it's not a focus satire. It's not like a Verhoeven Robocop or Starship Troopers where it's a sort of a focus satire. You know, like where the gremlins actually represent any one thing. But I definitely think like you can take all kinds of bits and pieces from this um, to suggest that the sort of you know, the the gremlins represent this. Um, because they are just having fun for the most part. I mean, they're not big, like you know. But you go into a room full of them. I'm pretty sure, like you'd probably get hurt. But they are just there to have fun. Like they are literally just sort of doing whatever the you know uh, food fight or hurling things around. Like the one now putting his finger into a plug socket. Like this thing of endless curiosity, endless sort of um, debauchery. Like it's not good, but it's still. Um, not the worst. Do you know what I mean? Um, so th- that's an interesting one. This is an interesting point because he's already been smoking cigarettes, but he's scared of a match. Um, but he's not. Like, he's already been smoking like four or five cigarettes. How were they lit? That's interesting. Um, but yeah. So I just think these ones in the bar are the ones that I'd want to see because you're sort of the most interesting. Although you do get one that's a terrorist one in a second, which again, mid uh, late mid eighties America. Is it a terrorist one? He's got like a balaclava on. He's got a handgun. Um, so it makes me wonder: like, is he supposed to be just a mugger? Maybe I don't know. Um, but it's interesting. Like, like you see, like it does things like, like the comedy in this, like the, the slapstick comedy in this, is fantastic. He's just, yeah. You know, he's not. 
yeah, saved by the lights. It's always the lights. Um, and again, I could make all kinds of analogies. You know, sort of their fear of the, their fear of the light means that they are darkness. You know, much like the I've been reading it recently. The car, the comic, the darkness. Um, within in the nineties, but the, the, you know, it's, it's it's when you see the town's reaction of everyone running away. When you start to think, this is a town. They've got guns. They've clearly got guns because the gremlins have got hold of them. Some of them. So people have got them. So it's again, you're like, why is it not? Uh, why have people not like clubbed together with sort of like, here you go, trust, savings and trust. So it's the, which is the sort of um, in um, it's a wonderful life. It's the saving and loans company, saving and loans uh, bank. So it's so supposed to be. Um, like it's a, this is it's a shitty life. Uh, see, they've taken out the bank, you know, for no purpose. But like, it makes you wonder, sort of like, what have they gone after? What have they smashed up in order? Why have they gone after the bank? Um, what was the purpose of this? Uh, exactly, there you go. Just like Mister Fudderman said. So Mister Fudderman has clearly said. That these things exist, he's now been validated and quite possibly killed by um, uh, a large Kentucky harvester. Here we go. We're now going to get the story, um, Kate's story as to why she hates Christmas. Um, so this is a story about how this is a story all about how her life got flipped and upside down. So she's, yeah, how her father um, decides that he has got himself a bunch of presents, done this other stuff, and they're collecting, the, they've been decorating the Christmas tree, he doesn't turn home, and he decides to come down the chimney to surprise them. And how they had to wait several days <laughs> over Christmas for him. Didn't turn up, they missed him. Didn't turn up for Christmas Day, didn't turn up for Boxing Day. So literally they'd go through the new year, and into the new year, um... So the family really struggled. This, so this is what adds to the, uh, the the sense that I think they left wherever they would live in to move to Kingston Falls. So she she went to light the fire, which hadn't been lit for a while. Noticed the smell. This is a tragic story. It is a tragic, tragic story about her how her father. Broke, slipped and broke his neck whilst falling down the... Yeah? Can I just say that? How absolutely fucking stupid you have to be to think that this is feasible. <laughs> like, you know, maybe... Again, like, I don't know all American architecture. I don't know. But I can guarantee um, you could not do this um, in a chimney in any relatively modern home in Britain. Even old... If you actually... In fact... If you go and have a look at a lot of old homes, you will actually find that there's a like a bit of a chink, so it will go straight down um, at an angle and then down again. And it's actually that for a reason. I think it's part of what creates the airflow that pulls everything out of the building. Um, so it's not possible to do this. And so to have tried it is possibly the stupidest thing. So it's one of those things of like you go, it is tragic she had to see this as a kid and that she lost her father to an incident like this over Christmas. But you do go, eh, well, you know, Darwin Awards and all that. I'm sure. In fact, I'm pretty sure if we were to Google this, you know, uh, in fact, I'm going to try it. Men die in uh, men dies in, in chimney dressed as Santa. Um, 
let's see. A man dies in Chimney of Santa. Uh, there you go. Brief history of people getting stuck in chimneys and dying. So on vice.com, there is actually... This, this is a thing that happens. More than just gremlins, this is... Yep, that has... So it has happened. So I do mock it, but still... Um, it has, it has clearly happened. Um, and obviously we had chimney sweeps and that sort of thing, which is different. But, like, uh, yeah, so people have tried it. Don't do it at home, anyone. It's a stupid idea. Um, I do love them walking through this town. Going back to the actual film, I do love them walking through this town scene set. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about quite a lot lately is... Uh, set designers uh, and set construction workers and actually the wonderful wonderful job pe these people do like you know we talk about the the i've talked about the sort of the writer and the producer and the director and all this other stuff and even the cast you know we've talked about in some cases uh, and i've talked about the sort of the special effects with the puppetry and that sort of things and even some of the stunts are worth we often talk about stunts when we do films i just want to highlight set design in some of these films um, the fact that they make film the houses so different, they've had to do all the different Christmas decorations. You know the the, the differences between the Fudderman home to the felt the Peltzer home to the sheriff's office, all the different t things in town. Um, you know the bank, all these things. They do an absolutely fantastic job keeping up with these things. You know, and sort of keeping that tone, and then having something like a simple set, like being at the convention with all the stuff going on behind them and that. But the way it's got to be set up absolutely fantastic so I, I you know i think set designers and set uh, dressers don't get enough um don't really get enough credit in things and i think they should because especially in a film like this especially when we get to the store at the end the final sort of uh, the thing so this this is a warner brothers film so i'm gonna call it this is a warner brothers film and they're using snow white disney's snow white um in uh for this part in this and they're sitting they're all singing hi ho hi ho but this film has had like marvel dc comics in the beginning uh referencing sort of frank frazetta art with conan um you've you've had all these different brands in it and now you've got disney like it was because i can't remember if disney was on its ass this much in the 80s like you'd sort of left its prime of the sort of six and uh, mid 70s so yeah this was sort of a dead period for disney animation like it was concerned that it's crazy to think it now in 2021 when Disney sort of owns everything. Um, that at this point, as far as I'm aware, like the 80s for Disney were a bit of a dodgy period. Like they weren't the Goliath they are now. You know, the parks were their primary source of anything. Um, and it was all based on nostalgia. It was all based on the nostalgia of everything from the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. And so. Like they weren't producing it in the 80s. You know, when you look at what was made in the 80s, what the, you know, they're not massive until 88, is it, with Little Mermaid? Um, and so it's, 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 not, it's not surprising, because obviously this this same time you get um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is also, I believe, a Warner Brothers movie, which has Disney characters in it. That's 87. That's 87 or 88. So... At that time, like they were looking to be paid for the rights for things, so they were happy to do this. This would not happen today. A Warner Brothers couldn't be like, you get a Warner Brothers animated film, something from you know, I don't know what their 
studio would be, but you'd probably have something like, you know, everything is awesome for the Lego movie. Kremlin's all singing that. That would be what it is. Um, how do Gremlins learn to read? Like, he looks across, and Sp Spike has now left the cinema, so he's off there, and he's now seen that there's a shop that says candy on it. How do they learn to read? Like, they, they what, they get, like, a level of intelligence? Um, should Billy be done for arson? He blows up and destroys the cinema. You know, yes, he kills them all, but, like, should he be done for arson? Don't know, interesting question. Um... This has got one of my favourite shots of this film, and this this is, is leading up to one of my favourite shots now. So, just as it's about to go uh, pear shaped, because they've obviously shown thingy, and it's just a bright white screen. There you go. You get them walking past, um, and the, this is the, the scene. There you go. This scene here, which is clearly like a rear projection of the animated gremlin, sort of at the screen. And then you get the real ones scratching their way through, um. It's so well done. And popcorn tubs on their head. Like, it's like a wave. I think this was picked up, and I can't remember what year it's in. In fact, I'm going to double-check it. Because this this is, like I've said, this is a well-made, uh, well-produced, well... You know, the special effects are absolutely excellent. One of the other... Another film that came out that is often um, cited at the same time is Critters. Now, when was Critters released? 86, so that came out two years later. So Critters is clearly a response um, to this. But where this has this sort of like, where Gremlins has this sort of like tidal wave. Oh, that's a good explosion. How, so like, they literally blow up that set, but it's used again for Back to the Future the year later. So they must rebuild so they can reuse it. That's incredible. Um... What was I saying? But yeah, so in this, there's like this tidal wave of the gremlins when it's coming through the cinema. But in this one, uh, sorry, in Critters, they literally turn it into a ball. You have that ball of um, the critter creatures coming after you. So again, fantastic ideas, really well done. Um, right, so we're going to go into, we're going into the final sort of store now. We're into the last sort of 20 minutes of the film. It's the third act now. Um... The final showdown and um, Billy versus the Alpha Alpha Gremlin. Because um, again, like this 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 film, one of the other things again, I've been focusing on the, the sort of um, the Gremlins as that whatever you know what whatever they're sort of an analog for. But um, what I love them on a skateboard. So Spike coming across on a skateboard. Again, like you know, just the, just the ideas they've got for some of this. And he was carrying all the candy. Um one of the things I think is fun is is actually is Billy's arc in this again is this idea of growing up and where sort of um um It's a Wonderful Life is about sort of you see the whole life of um, that character and then he has to sort of reflect on it and has understood you know what it would be like to be without him in this film is sort of like it's a wonderful life is it, the tale is it's about growing up and you know becoming your own man for Billy that's his arc you know this event is about it starts off with him sort of like you know he's drawing comics he's playing around at the bank um, he's got to be that stronger man and 
See, I always, I'm actually just telling me something that's an interesting one, actually. One of the things that's curious for this is you had the character of Gerald, who sort of, like, literally has dropped out the film. He's set up, I, and I don't know this, and I have to find out. I wonder if there's a deleted scene of him, of something happening to him, because he feels like he's... He's set up as not an antagonist, because that's what the Gremlins are, but almost like he's an antagonist to Billy. Like, he's a counter to Billy, isn't he? Sort of at the same age. Uh, and they have that thing of... they they have that conversation of setting them up to show that, um, you know, sort of Jerry has sort of gone on. He's now sort of like vice president of the bank. He's done all this stuff and he's looking to the future. Like, you know, he's looking to be wealthy and all sort of stuff. And that's why he's trying to sort of like get Kate. Um, but Billy is a bit more sort of chilled out. He's sort of still stuck at home and so on and so forth. And this obviously films about him growing up, which is what he does in the second film that they moved to New York. Um, but it feels like there's a deleted scene or there's a missing scene where you either see Jerry being attacked by um, the gremlins and then hit and showing that all this stuff that he's done, you know, that his wealth or his whatever, his position doesn't help him. Again, again, just want to say sort of like this this part here. Yeah, you go. We've got cameos from uh, Sylvester, Sylvester and Bugs Bunny and E.T., so you've got a nice little cameo there. So if you're not, you know, this thing is loaded with pop culture references. It's not a modern thing. Um, but you should have a scene of Jerry being attacked and something like with him failing. Or even you should cross paths with Billy and him running away, like leaving town, doing something, you know. To show that actually whilst he's got this power and stuff, he's not... I don't want to say a man's man because that sounds like horribly toxic masculinity. But like he's not, you know, he's not doing the right thing. There is a morality in this position where he has the opportunity to, he has the opportunity to help someone or save someone or you know, help Billy and and decides not to do it. Like there should be that to show that you know, we we know Jerry's a douchebag, but you you need that payoff. Like you need to have that finishing scene with it. And it's a shame it's not in here, because uh, you get all the other characters. You know, you get Corey Feldman. You show it shows him looking after himself. You see, the end for the Fuddermans. Um, Mrs. Deagle gets a payoff. Like it feels like Gerald's the only one that doesn't, and I think that's a real shame. Um, and we're going through the shops now. This is interesting. You go to sporting goods, and this is where you've got like this is where, like, you know, this is the best bit for me. They're going into a sporting goods store, right? This is and this is where um, it's so so different. But over his shoulder, there, bow and arrow, bows and arrows on a wall, right? Now. Kitted up, like why he doesn't get that. Um, he's got a baseball bat, fine, but this is where I feel like uh, I, I, maybe does he get a gun? Um, I don't know if he, they've already had guns, but again, we could have that thing of uh, oh, he's got a crossbow. There you go, sporting goods saw. He's got a loaded crossbow, um, and he figures it out. So Billy gets shot with a crossbow, um. And so Spike is definitely the, uh, um, Spike is clearly the more aggressive type of gremlin. Um, but, uh, yeah, sporting goods store with like proper weapons in, like, you know, and a chainsaw, working chainsaw. And this is the plug-in one, isn't it? It's an electric chainsaw because it's got a big, uh, a big wire on it. Um, but this is a cracking scene where it's like, you know, how good is your baseball bat that, like, 
or how shit is your chainsaw? I don't know which is which it is. That like you don't just cut through that baseball bat like you know this is supposed to cut into a tree. Yeah, it skims across the top of a baseball bat. Here we go. Um, Gizmo in his little remote control car. And again, this let, let's not forget. This makes no sense. Like I still love this film, and I'm happy. And again, you know, large scale Gizmo in that car. This makes no sense in uh, because. It's clearly a remote control car. It's not a small car. It hasn't got a little engine and pedals in it. It's a remote control car with a sort of a little motor in it. Um, who's controlling it? I know it's very silly and it's nitpicking things, but it's sort of it's always bugged me. For the rest of this film, has got sort of like they've maintained some sense of understanding, yet that bit seems to always sort of bother me a little bit. Um, so yeah, that that sort of is, that's my little bugbear with the end of this film is Gizmo riding around in a uh, a remote control car as as if it's a real car like it. Uh, um, but this bit, this bit is where it gets really good. So I was terrified of this. Yeah, water. And he's going to get into this pond. Get into guns. Here we go. So I knew he got a gun on sale. I noticed there the guns are on sale. Um. Um, so, so Barney goes in sort of like good dog Barney you're going in to help Billy woof woof um, you know so I want to know someone must be behind the scenes with a remote control just zipping this little thing around a, a supermarket around a shopping store and that's fantastic and woof woof I love all this this end bit's fantastic but as you say like you know um Spike's now got a gun um, from from somewhere, and it was on sale. And so, like you know, this is the thing I find fascinating. Like this is a it's now gone to a garden centre. Like he's got pot, potted plants. They've got uh, this water feature, and they were selling guns just next to it. Like that baffles me in America. Like you guys, absolutely. You know, I love Americans. <clears throat> I don't like America. Let's put it that way. <coughs> um. This openness of selling guns is, is just baffling me. Um, so, yeah, he's now got the, the gun, but here he comes to save the day. I'm surprised the car isn't a reference or anything, like, you know, like a Wacky Races or a, or something in particular. I don't know, Knight Rider. Was Knight Rider out yet? Don't know. Sounds like that feels like a missed opportunity. Let make the dog jump. Um, this is the bit I love. So you now see Spike's back as he is producing these babies. They're sort of nobbling up on his back and he's... It shows like what it's what they'd look like as um, adult as as, as gremlins um, um, giving birth. Like they don't pop out straight away. It's, it looks like they have got to a bit more of a gestation period because you know in this, when they were mogwise, they just <laughs> and off they went. This one takes a bit longer because they haven't gestated yet, and now it's like the bubbling on his back. But he gets caught in the sunlight, and this is what happens in pure sunlight. It's not just photosensitive; like it fucking melts them. Um, and so again, we get to this idea, like you know, this other notion, final couple of notions. This idea of the things that hide in the dark. Like, you know, we often saw even like uh, what was it, um, Evil Dead, you know, Dead by Dawn. Like the, the, the prosthetics on this are fantastic. The detailing. 
the modeling on this the dying um uh, spike uh, stripe is amazing uh, yet horrific that's the thing that used to scare me like it went blind like it's got white eyes its skin's all burning away um it's incredible um but the uh yeah, this idea of the gremlins being the thing that hide in the dark. So they can't come out in the day. You're safe in the daylight, but they are waiting for you in the dark. Uh, is a great little sort of like horror story. This, this idea that like every night these things would come out, you know, and you wouldn't be safe um, to sleep to rest because they're there in the nighttime waiting for you. Um, is really cool. And this final again, you get the final jump scare, um, which again just is skeletal design with ping pong ball eyes um and again this is a this is now badged as a 15 this is a 15 i don't know if it was when i was a kid i watched this way too young i was i was seriously thinking of showing this to ellie and she's eight i won't be i guarantee it she's not ready for this um she'd love gizmo not sure she'd be cope with the rest um so uh yeah uh the, the gremlins can be you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you were to do like a selection of things of saying right uh, gre the gremlins represent and then choose something you know capitalism um fear of foreign invasion fear of the dark whatever you could write an article or an essay and have that supported by this film which is a bit of a shame because it means that it's not as focused as i think it should be in its satire or in its poking at things but it still stands up as a really good um a really good sort of festive horror comedy. Uh, more into the horror than the comedy, but it sort of like has those moments. And I think it's the sort of the the Looney Tunes sort of element that I think works so well. The idea of the slapstick or the ludicrousness the, um, that sort of stands out that works so well, especially in sort of small town America. Um, but this, yeah, again, so we've got the return of the Chinese sort of thing. And again, you've got this idea of sort of like, what was it sort of... Um, you know, uh, um, Mahatma Gandhi was once asked, "What are your thoughts on uh, Western civilization?" And his response was, "It would be a good idea." Uh, you know, this idea again of like the West is not ready to sort of uh, is not ready to be responsible with certain ideas. This idea of like Eastern um, uh, eastern mysticism or eastern or certain things like you know we shouldn't be trusted because we just turn it into something and this film completely supports that like you know the first notion of, of ron peltzer is um was to sort of uh to try and sell it as a sort of um one in every home you know everywhere mogwai everywhere uh and you know so we can't be trusted because we're not willing to we're willing to we want to buy our way through everything Yes, yeah, comes much responsibility. Hey, uh, and there you go. We didn't mean it. We don't understand. We never get around to it. Like you know. There you go. The, the idea is that the Eastern sort of the old Eastern ways, uh, telling the the future, the West, we're not ready. This thing of being young and and sort of. Uh, rambunctious, if you will, you know, uh, obtuse, sort of tr not ready, just aggressive, um, you know, this idea of progress, but like progress for the idea of of um, wealth and gain rather than um, 
betterment, if you know what I mean. It's who can take that. There we go. Sweetest moment. Not cute little bastard. Um, I, this film's fantastic. You know, this this film has been fantastic, and um, it does stand alone as a fantastic sort of uh, Christmas horror film. It should be appreciated as such. I think you know, it's it's everyone goes on. I'm gonna say it again. Everyone talks about Die Hard, and and has this thing as being sort of the, the Christmas action film. And it is. It's a great film. Not going to deny that. But I actually think, I actually think Gremlins is a much better sort of standout as what can a uh, um, uh, an alternate Christmas movie. This film actually tries for that. Like it has those those beats. It's you know it has the connections to uh, Christmas Carol. It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, this idea that the characters have an arc, the way they learn. It has all these moments. And I think this is actually a much better sort of like closer to being an actual alternate Christmas film than Die Hard. I love Die Hard, and I can make an I can definitely make a case for Die Hard being a Christmas film, uh, and I have done. Um, but yes, I think this is a fantastic film. I really enjoy this. And what I'd say is, well, we're going now to the Jerry Goldsmith score because I've been listening to it throughout, and I absolutely think it's it's, it's so it's again relatively iconic. It's no John Williams, but Jerry Goldsmith does have his moments. Obviously, did the Star Trek. He did the score for, but became next gen. But this final score, dun 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 dun, coming in a second, is so. This final voiceover as well. I love the idea of this sort of like fourth wall breaking monologue at the end that tells you sort of like you know yeah you've watched this film but there might be a gremlin in your house going back to everything like the end of halloween scrooged which came out i think 86 87 did a similar thing um wonderful love that film but this score again uh so sort of wonderfully upbeat and wonderful like they didn't go for the schmaltz which i think they could have done um so i'm just going to pause it there and just sort of can we wrap up but there you go that has been uh, me talking about gremlins uh, for quite some time so that's coming up to 145 now so i'm gonna leave it there i absolutely love that film absolutely adore it it's, it's a great film so glad i got to watch it and we talked about different things and sort of i tried to keep it on point i could have just gone oh ah, about different things but i'm hoping i sort of you know did a bit of breakdown hope you gave something to think about and let me know what are your thoughts on gremlins is it as good as i say it is yeah, do you hate it do you love it let me know does it stand up with other films uh, and what other films do you recommend as alternate Christmas movies? Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> going to leave it right there. First and foremost, I just want to say there's a couple of things. This is the last episode of um, 2021 for 20th Century Geek. We'll be coming back in the new year stronger, bigger, badder than ever, uh, with a whole new format of things. So look out on uh, social media and on the website for announcements about how that's going to work. But for now, let me just say thank you. Thank you so much for everyone that's been listening throughout the year all the support, so to my patrons, all my guests I've had on, anyone that's come and supported me, contacted me, or spoken to me within social media. Uh, it's been a crazy, crazy year. You know, we've still had the COVIDs and uh, a load of other stuff going on, in and out of work, different things. And so, I, you know, I appreciate everybody's support and, and I hope that everyone has a wonderful, uh, safe Christmas. Um, and, you know, if you want to buy a great grift and you sort of want to support 20th Century Geek, there are two three many ways to do it go leave a review for us uh go on your podcast catcher and leave a review it's greatly appreciated 
um, and any anything, any feedback. I can look at it all, and I and I like it all. Uh, the other thing though is, um, I had a book come out this year, um, Judging Dread, uh, from uh, Sequart, all about Judge Dread. It's, it's uh, twelve essays and an interview uh, with Rob Williams, uh, writer of Judge Dread, about Judge Dread. It's on Amazon. I'll put a link below as a final thing for this year. Uh, the other thing, of course, is we have a Patreon. I'll be putting a link to that below as well. But on there we have three tiers, uh, Fan, uh, VIP and Chief. I think it might be the right way around. And on there you have got all kinds of things. There's 30-minute thoughts, uh, which I do on a monthly, which is me giving my thoughts on all kinds of things, uh, voted for by my patrons. Uh, weekly, we've got Trekking Through the Twilight Zone with me and Julian Darius, my uh, uh, co-host from Stories Out of Time and Space, doing an episode-by-episode breakdown of uh, every episode of the Twilight Zone. Uh, and then quarterly, we have a quarterly creator corner where I have somebody come on. I've had some fantastic guests. We've had Kieran Gillen come on. Uh, I've had Laura Summers come on, who's the voice of Janine from The Real Ghostbusters. Uh, Jason Impey, who's a uh, an independent filmmaker. Absolutely loved uh, all those people. So go and check that out. There's a link below. Uh, and there'll be more stuff coming to Patreon in the new year as well. And in the new year, we've got some great stuff coming up. Amazing stuff. Um, let me just give you a breakdown of how we're going to do it. Every quarter, we're going to have a, we'll have a bit of a rotation. We're going to be having four um, Desert Island comics. Uh, we're going to do a new one called Storytime with 20th Century Geek, which we've already started to test, which is talking with somebody about a short story, from a genre short story from the 20th century. Um, we're also going to be having Then and Again, uh, where I sit down with somebody and we talk about an original film and its remake, how they compare... Uh, what, which one's better, why they changed them, that sort of thing. And, of course, we'll be keeping with those retrospectives. So, ladies and gentlemen, anyway, thank you for all your support this year. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, we shall see you in the new year. Stay safe. Have a very Merry Christmas. And uh, I'll talk to you on the next episode. <laughs>